following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5:38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I am not Sam. Might come as a surprise. Well, good morning. My name is Ash. Uh, I am an MC leader in the uh, Park Hill MC community. Um, This is the first time I've preached in about a year. And uh, quite a few things have changed since then. Uh, I can only see half of your faces now uh, compared to about a year ago. And uh, also in the past year, I got married. (laughs) Never thought that would happen. Um, (laughs) Praise be to God. But uh, here here in the past five months of marriage, um, I've learned quite a few things. First of all, it's awesome. Highly recommend. Uh, Second of all, uh, I've learned just a few things about what it's like to live life on life with somebody. First of all, uh, leaving the toilet seat up causes much bigger problems for her than it does for me. Uh, Secondly, the answer to the question, what do you want for dinner, is always, I don't know, what do you want, and then a subsequent 30-minute conversation. And then finally, the idea of sharing things equally, you know, 50-50, that does not apply when it comes to bed space. I think it's closer to about 2575 maybe, or 2080, but I'm a side sleeper, so it's okay. I don't mind. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I've also learned that, that when you live life on life with somebody, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendships, whether it's your community, relationships can get a little messy sometimes. And a lot of that tends to do with how prone we are to offend others and to also be offended. So, before we start, I want to ask you a couple of things, and I want you to think about them. Two questions. Number one, what offends you the most? Is it when people are blatantly and openly cruel toward you? Or what about when you're just looked over entirely, the opposite end of the spectrum? Nobody even notices that you're there, whether that's at work or at home. Does it offend you when people get away with not following the rules? Or what about when your own integrity is put into question? And the second question I want to ask is, what do you do in response to that when you're offended? Do you turn into a raging bull? Just some kind of bully that wants to bully people into submission so that you make sure it doesn't happen again? Or do you find yourself turning into a pushover? just putting up a wall, starting to guard yourself so that when it does happen again, it's not going to catch you off guard next time. In, the, in this passage here today that Angie just read for us, 
we're taking a look at how Jesus is directly confronting that tendency to get offended and to be an offender. What he's doing is, is showing us examples here as you first read it that the raging bulls in the room might just write off as kind of being soft. I don't want to listen to that. That's, that's not realistic. Or the pushover is probably going to reject it because they know that they might actually get hurt in these scenarios. But Jesus' intention is not to be soft. His intention is not to cause you fear, but it's to show us a new way of dealing with conflict in our relationships through the gospel that is going to lead us onward into true flourishing, how we were designed to be in the first place. It's going to disarm the bull to lower its horns, and it's going to lead the passive person to allow themselves to be open up to the possibility of pain and hurt so that they can experience what true grace is like. So in that vein of grace, let's pray this morning and then we'll get started. God, we are so grateful here for the second week of the Advent season of peace and just the reminder that, that you are peace, that you bring peace, and in our hearts, uh, we, don't, we don't have to put up walls because we have full assurance of the peace that comes from you and you alone. This, this morning, God, I, I pray that you would speak through me, and uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this room, filling our hearts and doing the hard work, and uh, Lord, just convicting us where we need convicted and, and helping us to see what it's truly like to live as people of the kingdom. Amen. So over the past few weeks, uh, we've been going through several different passages, and and what Jesus has been doing in these passages uh, is calling us into a deeper understanding of what the law was meant for in the first place. Uh, many times over we've heard, he said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. And uh, he says that here as well. Uh, if, if you didn't catch it, we are in Matthew 5, verse 38 through 42. And there's some, some Bibles in front of you if you don't have one this morning. But he's saying it here again. And he's, what he's doing is contrasting what the law in the Old Testament was given about our actions versus what's actually happening at a heart level. And this week, Jesus is referencing a part of the law of the Old Testament that was given for judicial justice. In Deuteronomy 19, it, it mirrors here in Matthew 5:38. but Deuteronomy 19 says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And this is known as the lex talionis, or law according to kind. The law was given to the people of the Old Testament, the Israelites, because it was necessary. In ancient times, before they had the law, the method of justice was to increase payback by extreme measures to make sure that it didn't happen again. So, for example, you come kill my cow, I'm going to burn down your farm. It's a little extreme, but it was true. That's where the barbarians came from. The law was given to the Israelites here for the, a double effect, really. It was to define what justice was supposed to be, but also to restrain personal vengeance. It, it specified that the justice that the wrongdoer deserved, and it limited the compensation to the victim to an exact equivalent and no more. This was actually a very good thing. It restrained vigilantism. And it also takes the justice out of our hands. And it puts it into the authorities of God's people here on earth, and God as well. It prohibits having to take that law into your own hands. You don't even have to worry about it, because the judgment is going to be carried out by God's people, God's ways. So we're good, right? We don't need to worry about it. 
But Jesus had to bring it up. He had to bring it up to correct the posture that his people were taking at the time, and most of us still take today as well. He's taking it deeper than it appears on the surface, which if you've been around the last few weeks, he's been doing constantly. The scribes and the Pharisees try to use this passage of the law to justify personal revenge, but in Leviticus 19.18, it's explicitly forbade. Personal revenge is, is something that you're not supposed to partake in. This excellent principle of judicial justice, which was designed as a very, very good thing, was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing that it was instituted to abolish, namely personal revenge. And when we use it to get involved in personal revenge, what usually ends up happening is more damage to personal relationships than the good that it was even meant for in the first place. Simply, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. So what Jesus does is reorients our relationships by taking them out of the economy of the law, which is where the Pharisees and the scribes were stuck, and a lot of us get stuck today, and he's moving them into the economy of grace. He's showing us what it is like to operate within the dynamics of the kingdom, the way that we were designed to, what it's like to be kingdom people, and what those personal relationships look like in the kingdom. And personal relationships are supposed to be based on grace and not on justice. In verse 39, it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You see, Jesus is saying that our duty to individuals who do us dirty is not to retaliate, but we're supposed to move toward them in the hopes of being reconciled. But why is this so hard? That sounds gross, right? Why do we so badly want to give the bad guy what's coming to him? Much like those in the first century that's hearing these words, we love a good story about justice, don't we? The, the good guy prevailing at the end of the day. I mean, the thought of someone getting away with crime, with insult, with injury, it's, it's disgusting. It kind of leaves us feeling like, ugh, something's not right. And it's because we were a people that were designed for justice in the first place, so we love it. And production companies know we love it too because they make a fortune off of it. They understand what gets us kind of ticking. So some of our favorite movies and our TV shows are all about justice being served. I mean, look at the major TV networks. They come out with some kind of new crime drama every single year. I mean, you've got a crime drama about every city in the country, about every branch of the military. You've got a crime drama about, I think, Lucifer is literally a detective. I mean, you've got 1,500 Sherlock reimaginings, and we eat it up. We love every second of it. Or what about podcasts? Those have been blowing up recently, and what's always at the top of stream podcasts? True crime. Guilty. I love it. Catching a serial killer? Ooh. That's fun. And I'm also guilty of the next one, too. Did you know that there have been 23 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies made since 2008? That's just the Avengers, let alone X-Men and all the other stuff. 23 since 2008. That's almost two movies a year. And in that time frame, the worldwide box office alone, so that doesn't include merchandise, doesn't include the TV shows that were made off of it, that doesn't include... Uh, all the other stuff that goes along with it, the, all the uh, marketing and everything else, stands at $22.5 billion combined. That is almost $1 billion per movie that these companies are made, 
making. I mean, the idea of someone getting what's coming to them because of their evil actions, it gets us excited. We're willing to pay $10 a movie ticket plus $30 in popcorn and soda 23 different times to watch it happen. Again, guilty. I've lost a lot of money to Marvel. But in these narratives, we either see ourselves as the heroes. Hey, I could do that if I had some super serum. Or we just kind of want some kind of reassurance that at the end of the day, the bad guy is going to get what's coming to him. Somebody else, though, not us, right? We don't want that assurance of ourselves. We want to know that the bad guys, the guy that we see as evil, is going to get what, it's, what he deserves. So when Jesus says here in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil, that's shocking. I mean, how can there be justice if we don't resist it? And then on top of that, Jesus is going to take it deeper. Four examples of what it looks like to not resist. Number one, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn other, the other to him also. Number two, if someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak also. Number three, if you're forced to go one mile, go two miles with him instead. Number four, give to the one who begs and asks to borrow from you. I mean, on the surface here, as you read it, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, hey, anybody that comes along, just let them steamroll you if, if you want to. If, if they want to, just let them do it. But that's not the intention at all. Like I said, Jesus is showing us what it's like to be kingdom people in kingdom relationships. He's replacing that former way of living, namely personal revenge, with a better way that's going to lead to our flourishing, a greater righteousness. It's just uncomfortable because what Jesus is asking here is how much are you willing to part with in order to preserve your relationships? How much of your wealth are you willing to give away? How much of your comfort would you willingly say goodbye to in order to keep those relationships? I mean, ugh, come on. Judicially, lex talionis makes sense, right? You reap what you sow, and you pay for it. So what's wrong with just letting that be the marker? Why not? Let me ask you a couple of questions. What do you want to do when someone cuts you off in traffic? Do you want to cut them off back? No, you want to run them off the road. <laughs> what about when your car gets broken into? You want your stuff back, plus you want to sue them for more than the cost of a broken window, just for the principle of it. Or what do you do when your spouse is being passive-aggressive? You either want to snap, or you just start thinking of the laundry list of ways that they owe you unconditional love. The same unconditional love that you probably don't want to give back to them in return. Or what about when someone in your MC talks over you for the upteenth time? I mean, you want them to see it, and you want them to feel embarrassed about it. How dare they? I don't think it really matters what it is, but we're all pretty bad judges of what proportionate retribution would be. And unfortunately, that's what life would look like if that's the mark that we're aiming for. Your life just turns into a checking account of withdrawals and deposits. Your relationships turn into who gets the last and the harshest word. And your community turns into a sham by either being too afraid to say anything or be, by being so confrontational that nobody really wants to be around you anyway. These four examples, each of them are designed to call out the different ways that an eye for an eye was being used then and is still being used today as an excuse for personal vengeance. 
So let's walk through them one by one here. The first one is that old so famous one. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I always thought of this verse as something very physical and, and aggressive, some kind of fight that was about to start. But the more you think about it, that's not really the case, right? I, I don't really care if it's first century or now. You're not really trying to get in a fight by slapping somebody. I don't know how you do it in the Midwest, but I'm from the South, and that ain't how it goes. And also, on top of this, if you look at the wording, it's very intentional. It says the right cheek. Why does that matter? Well, most people are right-handed, so in order to hit somebody's right cheek, you have to backhand them, and that's doubly insulting. It's belittling. It's demoralizing, and your first thought if you get slapped is, how dare they? How dare they do something like that? So what do you want to do? You want to knock them out because your pride's been damaged. The second example is if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Back in ancient times, the, the cloak was the most valuable garment. You could replace a tunic a lot more easily than you could a cloak. And so Christ is saying if someone takes what you deem valuable, give them something even more valuable in return to show them grace and to open the door to reconciliation. Number three, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. I don't quite think this is where go the extra mile came from, but maybe. But it was a popular practice in ancient Rome for Roman soldiers to pick out Jews and use them as pack mules to carry their stuff for a certain amount of distance, a certain amount of distance that was deemed just cruel enough, but not too cruel. So the thought of this, the Jews hated it, and the very mention of it would have been insulting to them. And the last example, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We become like Smog the dragon in the hobbit in our lives. We, we just like to hoard piles of stuff and riches just to say that we have the best stuff. I think that's ever apparent right around Black Friday and Cyber Monday and the holiday season where we just want the newest, latest techie thing. I don't know why, but Amazon came out with a new Echo Dot and it's like a sphere. I want it. I've got two echoes. I don't need it. <laughs> but it looks cool. Christ is saying that your wealth is not meant to be used for that, but your wealth is a tool to keep the door of relationship and reconciliation open to anybody who needs it and to show them what grace truly looks like. In each of these examples, what Jesus is doing is calling us out of saving face or just doing just enough and what he's doing is actually calling us to turn our face toward our oppressor. It's a physical action that might open you up to get hurt again. And that's scary, because you might get slapped again. You might never see your coat again. You might have to go three miles instead of two. And you might have to give up more than your comfort can possibly bear in order to do these things. But you might also open the door to reconciliation. A door that's going to close when you turn your face away and you stiff arm the other person and say, I want nothing to do with you, you who caused me pain and hurt. And now this, this does require wisdom in its practice. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. 
No, it is not loving to let someone continue on in sin. Jesus knew this. this the time that he lived was just as nuanced as it is here today. But in order to call people to truth and offer them grace, we have to open ourselves up to the possibility of hurt. This possibility of hurt leads them to experience the same kind of flourishing that you and I are supposed to be enjoying. No, the loving thing is not always to give away every penny you have if those pennies are just going to lead somebody else into more sin. And no, the loving thing is not to allow a child or anyone else to continually be abused. So we put a stop to it, and we call people to truth. Not resisting the evil one doesn't mean just letting yourself or others get steamrolled and evil run rampant in the world. But what it does mean is not stiff-arming those who hurt us, not building up a wall to push them away and keep them out. It, reme- it, it means that in all of these circumstances, we respond in a posture that's going to welcome reconciliation and grace with open arms and open face. And with that exception, even now, I guarantee you that some of you are thinking, Phew, I'm off the hook. I don't actually have to go through the hard the stuff that Jesus is talking about, as long as I'm open to the idea of reconciliation. I can do that. It doesn't sound too hard. But in that, you're looking for a loophole. You'd rather feign reconciliation than go through the hard work of actually making a way for it. You're who Jesus is talking to here. Jesus is saying that your default should be unselfish temperament, naked humility, and a will to suffer the loss of personal rights, but that's not what we default to. Our default is to selfishness and pride and clenching on to everything we possibly can to claim as mine. This is mine. It's not our default because when we turn the other cheek, it feels like we're letting the other person get away with murder. I want you to think about those questions that I asked you at the beginning. What do you do when you're offended? I don't know about you, but for me, it feels guttural. You know, I don't think it's just the knowledge of, hey, what you said wasn't right. No, your insides, they start to well up, and your stomach just kind of feels like it's in knots, and it's almost like you've been physically hit with words. That's how tangible it feels, and, and we, we hate it. We hate wrong, and we want justice. In fact, we love justice. We love it until we realize that we are on the wrong side of justice. This is our second week of the Advent season. The Advent season is that period of time before Christmas where we, we, we recognize what it was like for the Israelites to anxiously wait for the return of Jesus, uh, for this Savior that they have been told about all throughout the Old Testament. So many times they, they were told that they're going to have a Savior coming, they just have to wait for it. You know, the true reason why a Savior needed to come was because we ourselves are the offenders. Not only to other people around us, but to God himself and our inability to live by the law that he has given us. I mean, think about your own words exchanged with your family. Or when you're irritated beyond compare at work or at school, what kinds of things are you saying to those around you? Is it to build them up? or to tear them down? Or what about those times, as rare as they might be, that you realize that you've been a jerk? 
How are you expecting others to respond back to you? Is it, do you expect proportionate retribution? I, I, I deserve it. Or do you expect kindness in return? Do you expect them just to forget about it and move on? Jesus knew exactly what he had coming to him, and yet he still came to the earth in human form anyways to show us what it's like to live fully in the economy of grace that he had given us, his kingdom. Jesus was born into a world that expected a savior, but the kind of savior that they expected was a rider on the back of the horse to come in and tear down these empires that had been oppressing them throughout the entire Old Testament. And when they realized that this Savior wasn't exactly who they expected. He was met with nothing but bitterness and contempt every step of his ministry. In the desert, he was tempted by Satan himself. And the entire time that he was out there, he was met with half-truths and sarcasm. I hate when people are sarcastic with me in an insulting way. And he was insulted and confronted constantly by the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to prove that he was a fraud and not the Savior that they expected. And then, when the people still didn't believe that he was who he said he was, he was tried, he was convicted, and he was murdered in one of the most gruesome ways in human history. I don't know if many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ but it's a movie that can probably bring you to tears when you look at the true way that Jesus was murdered and hung on the cross. The Romans were excellent, excellent at killing. In, that, in this experience, Jesus was whipped. He was beaten. The crowds gathered around him on all sides, and they mocked him, and they insulted him, and they spat on him, and then made him carry a very, very heavy piece of wood to the place where he was going to die. And then when he got there, he had nails driven through his wrists and his ankles, and he was left to suffocate and die alone on the cross. And Jesus willingly did that, knowing that the people that he was going to save were the very ones that were calling out among the scoffers, you and I. Not only did Christ die the death that we deserve for our sin, but he lived how we couldn't so that we could have the freedom to live how we were meant to. While our default is to selfishness, his was to unselfishness. While our default is to fully clothed pride, his was to naked humility. And while our default is the will to lose nothing, his was the will to lose everything on our behalf. Guys, the, the root of how to respond with grace to the one who is evil is to experience what it's like to have grace in return for your evil. Your ability to have grace is hindered by your blindness to your own sin. But when you encounter Christ, that changes. Encountering the fact that Jesus gave up all of his rights all of his dignity, all of his honor, so that you would have the opportunity to fall on your knees in repentance and restore your relationship with God the Father. This sermon series is called Practicing the Way of Jesus, and here, practicing the way of Jesus is practicing what it looks like to give somebody else the opportunity for rep repentance, reconciliation, and a restored relationship.
Now, if you're not a believer of Christ, proportionate retribution is probably a good marker for you to aim for here. It's going to be hard enough to even maintain that. Apart from Christ, the the best shot that you probably have is just cutting yourself off entirely from relationships with others. It'll get cold and lonely there, but it'll save you a lot of heartache. But for the Christian experiencing Christ, we humble ourselves to not seek vengeance. And in that, it disarms our offenders and it creates a doorway for them to have the same encounter with Christ that you had. I want to pull up a quote by Tim Keller on the screen behind me. He's a longtime pastor in New York City and he says things much more eloquently than I can. But he says, what does it mean to turn your other cheek? Means not to worry about an insult and to always say, listen, you slap me on this cheek, but anytime you want to come back and kiss this one, I'm ready. Anytime you want to get the relationship back on the right level and on the right footing, I am ready. Guys, because of the price that Christ paid and how he bore your sin and your insults on the cross, you are now given the freedom to do that. The freedom to respond with pure grace because you have nothing else to prove. Jesus did it for you on the cross and you have the full assurance that he did that hard work and in the end, he will get the last word when he comes again to judge those who continue to do wrong. This is what human flourishing looks like. Flourishing is the freedom to live how we were created to live. In 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So now I want to ask you the same thing. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not bear and suffer the wrong if it frees you to live fully into the identity that Christ has given you and the mission that he's given you? Why not suffer wrong if it means even just one person might have the opportunity to know the same grace that you do and the same Jesus? This is our freedom. This is the freedom to offer reconciliation and grace to people in your missional community when someone says something that's kind of hurtful. It happens. It's the freedom to respond with kindness and humility when you get a bad review from your boss. It's the freedom to continue to seek out your neighbor when they reject you and make you feel like you're a nothing. And it's the freedom to love and serve your spouse when they willingly, willingly choose to say something that they know is going to cut you deep. Flourishing is the freedom to suffer what is wrong so that you can open up the door for others to no longer suffer from their own wrong. Remembering in that that it's not just what Jesus said here, but it's what he did on your behalf that is going to break your heart and break your need to bully or to stiff arm those who hurt you. Because truth is, no matter what kind of wrong we have done, Jesus' posture is open toward us because he bore the brunt of our sinful offense. And that, that is what's going to free you to live with that unselfish temperament, the naked humility, and the will to suffer so that others don't have to anymore. Now, as we come to the table here in a minute, it's just another chance to reconcile yourself with Christ. 
It's another chance to humble yourself before the Lord, knowing full well that the victory has already been won. So there is nothing else left for you to prove here this morning. On the night before Jesus died, he offered the bread and the wine to someone that he knew was going to betray him, that he knew was going to give him over to the authorities. But Christ turned the other cheek, allowing the opportunity for repentance, and he now offers you the same. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you lived what it looks like to flourish in your kingdom, that you lived what it looks like to turn the other cheek so that we understand that we don't have to prove anything, but that our eternity is secure in you and our future is secure in you. And we can live the rest of our days with an open posture towards those around us. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us in that because it's not easy. But we pray that, that we could see what you did and we could live as kingdom people in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.